Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In May of 2009, Nick D'Andrea was working in the suburbs of Chicago when he got a letter that changed his life. As it happened, the letter also was a symptom of forces reshaping America. And, you know, Nick is a guy who sort of exemplifies a lot of the political discontent of the country. Nicholas Lemon is the former dean of the Columbia School of Journalism, where he's now a professor. He was able to work his way up from a real blue-collar upbringing to being relatively prosperous as the owner of a car dealership in a blue-collar neighborhood. This is... Um, a neighborhood that he started as a used car salesman and then became a new car salesman and then became a manager, and that's his route. When D'Andrea got the letter, he felt as if the bottom had fallen out of his life, as if the country he knew was gone. Perhaps, he thought, this country is becoming more like Iran. So Nick D'Andrea ran a Buick dealership, and he got this FedEx package one day in the mail after he'd been struggling with a lot of things for years, saying, guess what, you're out of business. And, and he had to shut down his dealership immediately. He had to fight legally and politically to get some kind of restitution other than just being out of business and broke, and then ended up you know, retiring and leaving the business. And now, after being an empty lot for a while, the, the corner where his dealership was is a fast food place. Lemon is the author of the book Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream. And he says the letter D'Andrea got in 2009, letting him know that his dealership was one of about 2,000 that would be shut down, it marked the end of an era of institutions, of organizations that enveloped lots of Americans in their embrace, often for their entire working lives. Nick D'Andrea and a lot of the neighborhood where he was working all those years grew up in the days when America was a kind of corporate welfare state. There were a lot of things good about that and a lot of things bad about that, but that's what it was for a lot of folks. So if you were in the orbit of a big, huge industrial company like General Motors, you thought, okay, you know, I don't have a lot of freedom. I got to take what they dish out to me. But they're always going to be there, and, and my life as part of the GM empire will always be there. And then, one day, that life was gone. One of the challenges we've confronted from the beginning of this administration is what to do with the state of the struggling auto industry. That was President Obama about two months after he was inaugurated, grappling with an industry that was both vital to the nation and that was clearly falling apart. By the time he spoke, the auto sector had spent the last months of the Bush administration and the first months of his administration hemorrhaging hundreds of thousands of jobs. And the president felt he had to do something. In recent months, my auto task force has been reviewing requests by General Motors and Chrysler for additional government assistance, as well as plans developed by each of these companies to restructure, to modernize, and to make themselves more competitive. Our evaluation is now complete. But before I lay out what needs... And soon, drastic steps were taken. Huge amounts of taxpayer dollars were used to prop up General Motors and Chrysler, guide them through bankruptcy, and make sure that the number of dealerships was substantially trimmed. The people who sent Nick D'Andrea 
that letter, they truly, I've interviewed them, they truly believe that they were saving the American economy by driving a lot of what they considered inefficient auto dealers out of business. So it's this kind of super confidence that you know you're right that tends to engender a lot of resentment and and do collateral damage. Now, it's hard to say who was right in this situation. It's easier to know who was hurt. President Obama's so-called car czar, a man named Stephen Ratner, had a good understanding of complex financial transactions. And that's certainly what the GM and Chrysler bankruptcies were. Ratner had been recruited to the White House after a long career in finance. He'd worked at Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley, and he'd been selected to manage billionaire Michael Bloomberg's money. He'd lived in a world that, Nicholas Lemon argues, was a relatively new invention in America. It was not about the power of organizations. It was about transactions, about Wall Street, about stock prices. Maybe, painful as it was, Nick D'Andrea's car dealership had to disappear. Maybe it was a relic of the past. Maybe. The question was what this new era of transactions would mean for the country. And it got at a central social and political question. How much individualism did we really want? Just about 50 years before D'Andrea got that fateful letter, author William White wrote a book called The Organization Man. It described a 1950s dominated by large corporations as stifling. And he went to a suburb in Chicago, a new suburb called Park Forest, south of Chicago, that was the home of the organization man. You know, it was newly constructed, and people would, men, would put on their suit, and they'd put on their fedora, and they'd get their briefcase, and they'd go to the train station, and they'd take the commuter train down to the Chicago Loop and come home at 5. And he presented this as like a living hell. This was, as Lemon notes, mostly a book about the careers and lives of men, particularly white men. And they tended to spend the time that they weren't in highly structured workplaces in smaller scale, but similarly structured, social groups. He complained, there's a too many organizations in this town, and everybody belongs to multiple organizations. Everybody knows everybody else and is very civically active. And that was part of the general awfulness of life in Park Forest. And we're talking here about groups like the Rotary Club, the PTA, bowling leagues, the Elks, on and on. It was a world that only a few years after White's book was published was also picked up on by a songwriter named Malvina Reynolds, who put to music what she saw in the suburbs of San Francisco. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one, and they're all and they all look just the same. And, the and that sameness felt similarly stifling to a young songwriting duo, Jerry Goffin and Carol King, who were inspired by the area near where they lived in New Jersey. Their song was penned for a relatively new band, The Monkees. Another pleasant valley Charcoal burning everywhere. Rows of houses that are all 
But, you know, it wasn't hard for these big corporations to recruit college grads back in the 50s. So lots of people wanted that life. Maybe some of them were dissatisfied, but a lot of them weren't dissatisfied. One other point to make about this, and it's really important to think about, in the 50s, everybody always complains about how bad things are. But if you had just come through the 1930s and 40s, compared to what we're used to today, I mean, it's unbelievably hellish, that period of, you know, the Great Depression, 25% unemployment, 40 million people worldwide dying in a war, the rise of Stalinism, the rise of Nazism, a lot of bad stuff happened, right? And, and so the organization man types, I think, felt, phew, finally we can live outside of a crisis atmosphere, and they were very happy to do so. But as Nicholas Lemon writes in his book, Transaction Man, what seemed like unending security to so many was not destined to last. An organization man would soon be felled by an unlikely group of brilliant people, people who wanted to change America and did. You know, what we've been talking about is you have this sort of corporate social order and there's a critique of it from the left, okay? And this is in the period when it was often said by liberals, Barry Goldwater, conservative, ran for president in 1964 and got wiped out by LBJ. And it was a sort of article of faith for liberals that conservatism no longer existed. Little did they know. So there was also a lot of stuff happening on the right that wasn't so visible to liberals. And one of the things happening was an objection on free market grounds, particularly centered at the University of Chicago Economics Department and Law School, to this kind of corporate welfare state system. So these folks were saying, yes, this is a terrible system, the reason it's terrible is not that it makes the organization man conform. The reason is that it's not capitalist enough. There are too many social obligations loaded onto what should be economic institutions, and somebody's getting screwed, and the people getting screwed are shareholders in these companies. They're not getting the return they need. So there's all this sort of economic value that's being locked up and lost because the corporation isn't sufficiently attuned to markets and shareholders. When you say there is too much corporate welfare, explain to me, like, if somebody, the, you know, an economist at the University of Chicago had been explain, had been saying what was wrong, what, what would they have said was wrong? Yeah, with- so what they mean by corporate welfare is not what people mean today. I, I don't know if they, if that's the right phrase to use, but it would be, What's wrong with a big corporation like, let's use General Motors or the big obvious example. In 1950, General Motors signed a historic contract, colloquially known as the Treaty of Detroit, with the United Auto Workers. Remember, this is all new. General Motors was like fighting in the streets with unions in the 1930s. And not too many years later, it's signing a contract that gives people job security, health care, pensions, annual raises, et cetera. So from the Chicago point of view, that was the problem. Um, They were giving away too much. They could could do a better job of bargaining with workers. Yeah, it was a a non-economic decision to be nice to workers. 
that wasn't justified in terms of giving value to the shareholders of GM. So things had to be done to shift the balance of power and give it to shareholders. So, you know, the most famous of the Chicago school folks was Milton Friedman. And he wrote an article in the New York Times in, you know, early 1970s saying corporate social responsibility, a term that's back in the news today, is a terrible idea. Corporations should not be socially responsible, said Milton Friedman. They should only care about their economic performance and how much value they're enhancing for their shareholders. Then a person who's a, a major character in my book named Michael Jensen, who was a younger economist trained at the University of Chicago who knew Friedman, decided he loved this article and he would expand it into a big kind of rigorous academic paper. So he wrote a paper in 1976 that really echoed Friedman but went through a lot of specific techniques that corporations could use to change how they were organized. For example, they should take on lots of debt because then the CEO would be motivated to make debt service payments. The CEO and other executives should be paid very large salaries in stock options so they'd be incentivized to perform. There should be a way for companies to be taken over and resold and restructured more easily. So. When we look at the situation today, and we have a presidential campaign well underway, and you see both here and all over the world, particularly in Western Europe, very high levels of economic discontent that translate into political and cultural discontent, I think a cause of that that isn't getting enough attention and needs to is the destruction of this world of the corporation as a kind of quasi-social welfare state. I don't think it can be restored, but I do think it's important to understand how much that big, big change that, that again, I don't think we pay enough attention to is, is powering what's happening now. And in particular, a whole set of changes led to the economic crisis of 2008-09, and, and that has had big political reverberations, even as the economic part of the crisis has been solved. You're listening to Innovation Hub. We're talking about the disappearance of organizations and institutions in America and the creation of something else as a kind of new cultural centerpiece, the transaction. Nicholas Lemon is the author of Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream. And when we come back, We're going to look at how a world of transactions changed everything, including politics on both the right and the left. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in just a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In America, the 1970s were a time when large corporations with physical products frequently gave out solid benefit packages to employees. 
And those employees often stayed at their jobs for a long time and retired with clearly defined retirement plans. General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, which were all bound by union contracts, were three of the six largest American companies in the 1970s. Author Nicholas Lemon says this was the era of the institution, which had its upsides, like a safety net. But by the 1970s, the writing was on the wall for institutionalists. If you're fundamentally market-oriented, you think markets in the aggregate are better for everybody, including ordinary people, even if they create pain in the short run. Lemon is a professor at the Columbia School of Journalism, and he notes that in the 1970s, there were conservative economists, largely based at the University of Chicago, who argued if we give lavish perks to employees, we're screwing shareholders. That is, if, if you have an existing economic arrangement that is inefficient, it retards the country's national wealth. And if you break it up, whoever lost their job will suffer in the short term, but you'll have much greater prosperity in the long term. Lemon is the author of the book Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream. And this was an era, he says, in which the idea for Transaction Man was being born. A worker who would be rewarded based on stock prices and slicing and dicing corporations and leveraging debt. But creating an era characterized by transactions wasn't just a conservative idea. Liberals who disliked the conformity of large organizations and believed in market dynamism thought things could be better. You see a lot of this, you know, recurring today. It's Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio uh, in the Rust Belt who has doubts about trade. It's not Senator Schumer from New York who has doubts about trade. It wasn't Hillary Clinton who had doubts about trade. So there was a, a kind of bicoastal liberal consensus that maybe the conservatives were right that we should move the needle more in a, in a market direction. One of the most prominent conservatives advocating this focus on the market and on shareholders was an economist named Michael Jensen, who was one of the advocates for change at the University of Chicago. Jensen understood the economy was shifting. Labor costs in other parts of the world were far, far lower than labor costs in America. And even when it came to his own family, Jensen had a sense of where this was all headed. He comes from a real blue-collar background. He was the first person in his family to go to college. And his father was classic vanished job, a, a linotype operator at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And um, he had a terrible falling out with his father because he would he's very candid, you know, maybe excessively candid. And he told his father, you know, essentially, you're not performing a useful economic function anymore, so you're going to lose your job. And not only are you going to lose your job, you're going to lose your pension that you went through your whole life paying into and believing would always be there. And his father was, you know, and he was right, but his father was really? so angry that yeah. they stopped speaking to each other. I don't know if you think we've left the transactional era, but I do, I have noticed that over the past two, three years, ever since President Trump has been in the spotlight, even before he was president, 
one of the words that is most commonly used to describe him is transactional. And I thought it was so interesting. Here's this book called Transaction Man. And and people, if I had to say who first comes to mind when you say transaction man, I'd have to say President Trump because I hear on the news all the time people say, well, he's a very transactional person. Sometimes they mean that positively. Sometimes they mean it negatively. Can you uh, tell me what you think when you hear that? Yeah. So I, I think generally... I completely agree that the transaction era, if you accept my terminology, is coming to an end or has come to an end. And we're in a really interesting period similar to the progressive era of 100 years ago where we're kind of figuring out what comes next. And I would give you a pretty long list of things, not just President Trump, but the financial crisis is really driving this new mood. I think it had much more effect long-term uh, on how people think about politics than is appreciated. Uh, you see Brexit as an example. You see uh, the, these bitter wars over immigration and nationalism as an example. The most recent one, even post-President Trump being elected, is the turning of public opinion against the big tech companies who were, you know, widely admired as recently as five years ago. Hmm. And the reintroduction of antitrust, you know, breaking up big economic concentrations into the political conversation. I mean, we're having a really different political conversation than we've had in my lifetime, both on the right and on the left. Things like, let's go back to Trump. So not only is he transactional, but also, when he was running for president in 2016 among 16 or 17 candidates, yes. he was the only one who, and this is one reason why he was made president, who departed from what I would call the transaction man ethic. That is, he never questioned Social Security and other basic safety net programs. He did question free trade, all those kind of pro-market ideologies that had been a feature of the Republican Party for so long, he departed from them. And that's what made him the nominee. So he was able to tap into the economic discontent created during the transaction era. And so was Bernie Sanders. Remember, in 2016, nobody took Bernie Sanders seriously as a presidential candidate. He was this kind of crazy old guy in the U.S. Senate the only socialist, et cetera. And it was a total surprise that he became a serious challenger to Hillary Clinton. So really, on in both parties, you had a kind of economic consensus that these complete outsiders challenged and got a big vote, bigger than people expected. Hmm. Now, in the Democratic primary season, it's, it's, it's an out-and-out -out battle but I really think all these basic economic and political arrangements are in play again right now in a way they haven't been for years, and the country's reinventing a social compact. I don't want to sound nostalgic. I don't think it is desirable or possible to bring back the organization man era. You know, you may have seen the Business Roundtable issued a statement recently calling for corporate social responsibility, sort of mm. hearkening back to those days. They, 20 years earlier, issued a statement saying, 
there's one job of a corporation, which is to serve shareholders. So mm. they've changed. But I don't think the answer is going to be going back to the old days. I think the answer is going to be something different and unexpected. But I think it's very healthy that we're sort of waking up from this uh, long era of being much more celebratory of transactions. So it sounds like you think that just as Institution Man came along and Transaction Man, that we're ready for like another Big Bang moment where something new is going to be created. We just don't quite know what. Right. And and history unfolds in a messy fashion. It's uh, including these two previous eras that I that I've been discussing. So it won't happen that one day somebody will get up and get, give a speech and the whole country will say, great. It'll be these are big, important issues, how the economy and political system of the U.S. and the world are organized. So it's always going to be a big fight. But I definitely would predict that a new era is going to dawn of some kind because the previous one, it produces too much inequality economically, too much instability, and too much political discontent to be really survivable. And something else is going to come along and succeed it. And it'll be fun to watch it being born and and useful, if one can be, to be part of the creation of it in some way. Nicholas Lemon is the author of Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream. He's also a professor at Columbia Journalism School. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And on our website, we've got more about some of the people that we've talked about in this discussion, from William White, who wrote the book The Organization Man in the 1950s, to economists Michael Jensen and Milton Friedman. That's at innovationhub.org.